How do you picture God? Does your version see God as transcendent and unknowable or as revealing and intimate? Is God demanding, vengeful, loving, or forgiving? Is God for us or against us? I recall a New Yorker cartoon that depicted God as a bearded man sitting at a computer with his finger hovering over a button. In the same frame is an unsuspecting person walking down a sidewalk, oblivious to the fact that high above his head is a heavy piano being hoisted with ropes that are beginning to fray. The computer button reads, Smite. The artist wants us to consider whether God is intentional or capricious, whether God is judgmental or forgiving, whether God can be trusted or not. People who regularly read the Bible might find such a cartoon offensive. Yet when faced with a personal crisis or tragedy of their own, they may very well wonder if God is punishing them in an effort to make sense of what's happening. Compare that picture of God with the one Jesus portrays through his telling of the story of a man who had two sons what is commonly referred to as the parable of the prodigal son found in Luke chapter 15. I like Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal God, because I think it's one of the best treatments of how this parable conveys the heart of the gospel. He argues the meaning of prodigal is not wayward as applied to the younger son, but reckless extravagance as seen in the actions of the Father. Jesus indeed focuses our, intent, our attention on the Father in this story. But equally critical to understanding how Jesus used this story is to identify his intended audience. Luke says Jesus was being judged by the Pharisees and teachers of the law on the basis of the company that he kept namely men and women of doubt, doubtful reputation, without moral or religious standing. People very much like the younger son in the story. Since Jesus' parables were used to catch his listeners by surprise, it is apparent that the Pharisees and teachers of the law are represented by the older son or brother. The starting point of the story the startling point, pardon me, of the story is that both sons are separated from their father and in need of being reconciled to him. What makes it possible for their relationship to be restored is the grace shown to them by the father. One son is ready and willing to accept his need of such a gift. The other feels no need of it at all. Let's listen to this story as it is read for us by Gail Burson. She will also read a second passage from Ephesians 2, 10 through 12, in which the Apostle Paul describes how grace is necessary to believe the gospel. Jesus told this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the man divided his property between them. 
Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. The son longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back, safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The Apostle Paul wrote these words to the church in Ephesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The word of the Lord. Did you hear the preponderance of personal pronouns in the story? Once the younger son comes to his senses, he doesn't speak of returning home, but of returning to his father. In rehearsing the words he's going to say to him, he says, 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father who watches and waits for his son's return runs to greet him and calls for a ring to be put on his finger, likely a ring with the family insignia or seal, for shoes to be placed on his feet, not uncovered like that of a servant, and for a feast to be served. This is cause for celebration, he says. My son is no longer lost to me. By contrast, the older brother shows disdain for his father's actions. The personal pronouns continue. He says, this son of yours implied no brother of mine doesn't deserve your attention or acceptance. The father replies, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. We have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The essence of the gospel is about being in right relationship with God. Imagine you are in one room and God is in the adjacent room. A door separates the two rooms, but on your side, there is no handle. The only way for the door to open, for you to have access to God, must come from God's side of the room. The act of that door being opened is grace. There is nothing in our power to gain access except to simply receive entry as a gift. All we need do is cross the threshold, but it is amazing how difficult that choice can be. For the younger son, receiving such a gift was a matter of humility and a willingness to acknowledge his rebellious choices, which put distance between himself and his father. Not knowing how his father might respond, he chose to come back because he had nothing to lose and everything to gain. But not so for the older son. He takes pride in being nothing like his shameful, degenerate brother. Ever reliable and responsible, he sees no need of a gift because he deserves all that he has coming to him. He's earned it and thinks his father owes it to him. For someone to so upstanding and self-righteous, the idea of a gift is insulting. The younger brother's estrangement from the father was obvious. By asking for his inheritance early, he in effect wished that his father was dead. He wanted to live life on his own terms and in his own way. Though the older brother stayed home and proved to be just, he proved to be just as disconnected and distant. Yet whereas the younger brother knew he was alienated from his father, the older brother was blind to his true condition, which is the reason Jesus tells the parable. According to Jesus, those who confess their need and acknowledge the break in their relationship with God are the ones who are able to cross the threshold because the prerequisite for receiving God's grace is to know you need it. Those who rely on their own moral conformity and their own goodness are unaware of their need. 
After all, who needs grace if you follow the rules and color inside the lines? I've been there. Not until I came across the concept of spiritual pride in the writings of C.S. Lewis did I recognize my need to repent and accept God's grace. Pride is that strong sense of superiority that we feel when we compare ourselves to others. Spiritual pride is when we think our moral and religious standing makes us better than others. The older brother could not forgive his younger brother for the way he had weakened the family's standing in the community, the way he had disgraced and brought shame on their name, and the way wealth, uh, the way he had diminished the family wealth. He not only felt superior to his brother, he felt superior to his father too. His father's happiness and will had never been his goal. C.S. Lewis says, pride not only damages our relationship with others, it can make us an enemy of God. He says, for in God, we come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to ourselves. Unless we know God as that, and therefore know ourselves as nothing in comparison, we do not know God at all. As long as we are proud, we cannot know God. A proud person is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as we're looking down, we cannot see something that is above us. Lewis continues, how is it that people who are quite oblivious, obviously eaten up with pride can say they believe in God and appear to themselves very religious? I'm afraid it means that they are worshiping an imaginary God. They theoretically admit themselves to be nothing in the presence of this phantom God, but are really all the time in imagining how he approves of them and thinks them far better than ordinary people. That is, they pay a pennyworth of imaginary humility to him and get out of it a pound's worth of pride towards their fellow human beings. Well, I'd like us to consider what difference it makes for a church to emphasize grace as integral to the gospel message. And I have three observations. The first is the development of faith will be more about growing a relationship of trust in God than about cognitive apprehension of knowledge about God. This is why we have implemented an apprentice immersion approach to making disciples with an emphasis of daily life practices and sharing what we learn as a process in the context of a committed cohort. The objective and the method are all relational. Have you ever noticed the common feature of the Apostle Paul's letters is that he reminds his readers that they have received God's grace through faith and having been made right with God they are now to live a life that honors that relationship, to demonstrate the transformation that has taken place in their lives because of the gift. Listen to this aspect as reflected in Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. 
Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, he could easily have said God's grace, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what, is, what God's will is, God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. Similarly, if believing the gospel requires us to accept God's gift of grace with humility, then that same sense of humility should mark the way we as a church function. Rather than a top-down authoritarian form of leadership and teaching, we choose to make the learning process and our shared leadership a matter of discovery and mutual, um, uh, mutual benefit. My second observation is that without grace, we misunderstand the place and the value of good works. The Apostle Paul stated that good works follow grace. They are the outward expression of this inf inward transformation of our heart. God, God, good works are not produced by our good nature, nor are good works our effort to prove ourselves worthy of God's acceptance or approval. No, good works result from someone who's received God's gift of grace and now chooses to live in such a way as to bring honor to God's name and demonstrate that person's gratitude for all God's blessing. Good works are not an obligation to achieve, but the outgrowth of God's character being formed in us. When comprehended as the grace of God, the gospel bears fruit, which is another expression of good works. So we read from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians. You have heard of this hope before in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. Just as it is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world, so it has been bearing fruit among yourselves from the day you heard it and truly comprehended the grace of God. This is the reason our church makes a priority of world mission and being a congregation that seeks to be engaged in service to our community. What it means to be missional is not only to partner with people who make their living and teach by teaching the gospel cross-culturally, people like Emily Shamers and Sherry and Dusty Ellington, who will be with us next week, but it also means we're intentional about how we proclaim the gospel through word and deed in our respective spheres of influence. Our hosting of the Sonoma County Sheriff's Forum last Tuesday was an example of our church taking the gospel seriously. Laurel Quast, who's on our anti-racism and social justice team, reported that Vice Mayor of Santa Rosa, Eddie Alvarez, who attended the event said, that an attendance of 40 people would have been remarkable. We had over 100 people, of which 55 to 60% were from our congregation and about 40 to 45 were guests. Mr. Alvarez, along with all three candidates, complimented 
how well organized and thoughtful the event was done. Whichever one of these three is elected sheriff, that person will know that the people of Santa Rosa's faith community cares about the sheriff's office and its ability to serve the vulnerable of our community and to work for the justice of all. And finally, my third observation is that grace is the starting point, but the goal is for us to become like Jesus so that we can reflect God's character. It takes grace to believe because it takes humility to be in a position to know we need God and admit it. If, like the older brother, we believe God ought to bless us because we've worked so hard to obey and be a good person, then Jesus may serve as our, our example and our inspiration, but he is not our savior. In effect, we serve as our own savior. The older brothers of this world obey to get things. They don't obey God to get God himself. Thus, nothing about them resembles God or knows God or loves God or delights in God. This is what Paul said to the Ephesians in chapter 4 of what it means to learn Christ. He writes, You have heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. To put away your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to clothe yourselves with the new self, created according to the likeness of God, and true righteousness and holiness. By learning Christ in this way and reflecting his likeness in this world, perhaps we might be the reason someone changes their picture of God to discover his grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ. May it be so. Amen.